3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good, a little, little bit. Uh, you know, Monday's always a bit of, hey, <laughs> wake up, it's time to move. <laughs> so there's there's a bit of that because it was a yeah. pretty relaxing weekend, gorgeous weather. And um, yeah, really good On to be Saturday, outside. it was nice, wasn't it? It's Saturday. It was, I even liked yesterday. <laughs> did you? you are, yeah. yeah. Didn't mind the so, rain. Some people, no. Some, did you get rain? We got rain. Did, no, not so much. But um, yeah, it, it was, you know, I was out. And the morning was sunny. Well, yeah. well, I was at work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy my Sunday back. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, but yeah. look, here we are. I had a lovely walk oh. around um, Prince's Park on oh. Saturday morning, though, in the Very sun. Very oh, nice, it was gorgeous. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, good. Ooh. Well, I went along on Friday to the NADOC march, which was really inspiring. I have to say, um, you know, people like a few thousand. I think there were a couple of thousand, maybe people came out and. And the colours and the you know the, all the face paint and um, yeah lots of great energy and then in Fed Square there was music and Dan Sultan and you know all, I mean I didn't get to hear all of it I wasn't there for Dan Sultan but certainly he was advertised and um, yeah the mood was amazing it was great. Did they have any speakers that were coming? Well, surely, you know, no, at the march they mm. would have, but mm. I was just at Fed Square, mm. and the the host was was the comedian, stand-up comedian, Shirley Hood, and she was amazing in welcoming all the marchers in as they came into Fed Square and uh, introducing the music. And, uh, yeah, so as I said, I didn't get to would stay for all of it, but uh, what I was there for, yeah, felt pretty fabulous. And we are in the middle of NADOC week. I know it, it sort of started last week, but the official dates are from well, this yesterday. Is the federal, the yeah. federal, yeah. yeah. Um, NADOC. Mm. And for those of you who might not know, NADOC stands for National Aborigines and Islander Day Observance Committee. So it is a committee of um, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who really um, have had its origins traced to the emergence of the Aboriginal groups in the 1920s, and it's held obviously for the first full week in July, and it's a time to celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, culture and achievements. And some amazing activists as well back in um, the 1930s. And, um, yeah, just thinking, you know, the kind of work that Aboriginal peoples have been doing for over the years uh, in advocating for, for their rights, in advocating for other people, um, of other people's rights, and I, I know the march on the German embassy. I think it was 38 after Kristallnacht, um, led by um, William Cooper, which is the name of my electorate now, Cooper, which is yeah, great. So they, no they Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, way better. And also, so they led that march because of what was happening to the Jewish people in Germany, and saying we know what that's like. Mm. Yeah, mm. and um, yeah, I felt I feel really inspired by 
that walk and and just by the work that Aboriginal people have been doing for so long okay. and Torres Strait Islander peoples yeah. too. Yeah, and so. every, every year it's uh, a different theme. I know last year... Uh, the national theme was Our Language Matters, and we did have um, a lady from down in Geelong talking about the emergence of Indigenous languages that they're trying to capture, especially mm. in Victoria. Mm. I know that in certain parts of the Northern Territory it's quite big. Mm. And this year it's uh, Voice, Treaty, Truth. Uh, let's work together for a shared future. And I think the emergence of... Um, the Treaty Commission has been quite a, a very, very yeah, forward significant movement. here. Mm. Yes. Mm. yes. And today, sure. on this special uh, program, it's the start of our Beyond the Bars in 2019. So from uh, yeah. 11 till 2 today, we're at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. Every day this week, um, it's 11 till 2. And then Wednesday, we've got two shows at Fulham Correctional Centre at 11 till 1 and from 1 till 3 at Loddon Prison. So I always look forward to the release of their CD, Beyond the Bar CD. Yes, and last week I think it was Thursday breakfast did an interview with um, Kucha Edwards who was on the road heading out to actually do those interviews. So oh, that was fantastic. really fabulous yeah. hearing, you know, Kucha and a little bit of background in the car and, you know, <laughs> on your way. It was, and uh, we all know now he loves a cappuccino. And we do know that. <laughs> That's a result. Thank you, that Thursday. Thursday, Brecky, <laughs> thank you. Yes. Not cups of chino, as my uh, father-in-law says. Cups of cups chino. Of chino? Uh, oh, why uh, not cups of chino? <laughs> and, and just to give you on the quiet... Yes. You can request your free copy or the double CD when it does come out later in the year. You can email projects at 3cr.org.au. So get in early. Yeah, yeah, that's beyond <laughs> that's the bars. So yeah, and it, it's always great to hear those voices, yeah. for sure. And on the show today, we'll be talking to um, the Council for Homeless Persons, uh, Jenny Smith, about the work that they do um, in recognising that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, exist in, in Victoria and, and don't have a home as part of the homelessness crisis that we're having. And um, I spoke to her late last week, so she'll be on at 7.15 and then at around 7.30. Well, 7.30 we'll be speaking of, it's almost like kind of like part two, Richard Cantor. Yes. We'll be talking about, um, you know, what's happening with regard to our relationship with China and the U.S. and some of the complications within that and how we should, you know, think about how we can think about ourselves more independently in relation to both defense policy but also in relation to Asia and how we engage with Asian countries. So mm-hmm. that will be on. I feel like all this talk about the uh, umbrella movement in China that we've had on this show has led to a... You know, a push of young Hong Kong people going crazy and knocking down the buildings. Hasn't that <laughs> been amazing? I keep thinking, Judith, it's your fault. They're coming for you. I hope so. I hope so. No, it's been incredible because I think on the, the weekend, Mother's March, about uh, talking about 8,000, of course, depending who you listen to, 8,000 or 1 or 2,000. Yeah. You know, Mother's yeah. March in support of the children. And, and, of course, the week before, they were talking about not 1 million, but 2 million people. Mm. and taking over LegCo, the Legislative Assembly. And there was a great article on the hand signs that the young people used to tell each other to communicate and what they needed. So there were signs for send helmets, and then there was this human chain through along which the helmets were set, and there was another one, send umbrellas. I can't, I can't remember all the hand yeah. signals. But yeah. That's it was, amazing. I mean, amazing organization. So, yes, and now they're today, I think, or yes, well, probably Sunday there. I'm, on, I'm not doing maybe not. No, there are, I think it's only a couple of hours. They're in Mong Kok, which is a suburb in Hong Kong, talking to Chinese tourists to tell them, 
what's going on and a small group I think has been in uh, is in conflict I don't think any violence has broken out but they're yeah talking to the police the police trying to move them on so mm-hmm. yes lots happening in Hong Kong it's fascinating and you got to wonder how is Beijing looking at all this yep mm. and at eight oh we're at eight and with our <laughs> neighboring countries okay um, and we're going to speak to liam o'brien from the australian council of trade unions about what's happening in south korea with um kim moi young hung who has been arrested for protesting and this is in south pain. korea right this mm. is in south korea yes yeah, so we'll, and we'll never know what What's happened that? in North Korea last oh, week? Well, oh yeah. well, we're still, we're still <laughs> we'll waiting. never know that. We're still waiting to find out on that. And and um, at seven forty-five, we're going to be speaking with Dennis Muller. Um, oh, the, sorry, I missed. I no, missed that's all right. I jumped no, straight no, in. It's there. fine. <laughs> we're just as usual. We have lots going on. But I'm going to be talking at eight. So yeah, <laughs> that's right. You are. You're talking at eight. I'm speaking to Dennis Muller at seven forty-five about the new inquiry that the government has launched into the Senate inquiry into press freedom and some of the concerns about that. So, yeah. And then we've got something lighter to end the show. Oh, yes. We're going to revisit Popomoko. And so we just hear about that, more about that. That's the um, story that or a show that's going to be on at Footscray Community Arts Centre. So we've got a really busy show. We have. Oh, goodness. And I think we're going to just play some music now. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, go. It's uh, No Fixed Address yeah. with uh, We Have Survived. And No Fixed Address is uh, an Australian Aboriginal reggae group formed in 1979. Wow. Mm. Um, band members from uh, the Kaniba Mission in Seduna. And they were students at the Centre for Aboriginal Studies in Music in Adelaide where they were heard and were inspired by Jamaican reggae music for the first time. And at the beginning, um, you know, they were a pub rock band, but alternative music scene was where they um, cut their teeth, especially supported by their local community radio station, 5 Triple M, the old name, which yeah, is... That's, uh, in, that's in Adelaide, but yeah, 5 Triple M, in case you didn't recognise that. Yeah. <laughs> which is now 3D Radio, um, yeah. Power Community Radio. And, um, community and radio. They do great work, they do great music work, for sure. And they yeah. perform many times touring and playing festivals around Australia and Europe. So here yeah. is No Fixed Address. We have survived. The white man's rule, I think, is uh, how it goes. No fixed address. No fixed address. And that's a classic. That's a true classic. Yes. And in 2016, they actually performed in Melbourne and they said that there were going to be more performances to come. There hasn't been yet, but. I saw them. I saw them in 2016. Did you? I did. Yeah. It was fabulous. It was very exciting. Yeah. Amazing. Come back, no fixed address. If you don't have a fixed address, you should be moving around. I don't. Th- <laughs> I, I don't think it's all the original uh, performers, but uh, yeah, the same. Yeah, feeling, same rhythm and build. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go to. I mentioned uh, earlier that uh, the um, theme for this year's NADOC Week is let's work together for a shared future. So, Voice Treaty 
and truth. Um, and earlier in May, we had uh, Reconciliation Week. And during that time, the Council to Homeless Persons were calling on Victoria to urgently address their disappropriate, um, disproportionate number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people facing homelessness. Uh, 7% of Indigenous uh, Victorians in social housing experience overcrowding, but they also um, have a large number uh, in terms of uh, sorting out help for homelessness services in 2017 and 2018. That number has grown. So I spoke to the CEO of the uh, Council for Homeless Peoples, Jenny Smith, in regards to um, you know the work that they're doing and what they're doing with uh, um, Victorian Aboriginal housing to try and combat this problem. I started off by asking her, first and foremost, who... Council for Homeless Persons were. You're on 3CR Breakfast with Dean, Judith and Alice. Uh, new data released in June um, confirmed that Victoria's housing crisis continued to worsen with rents rising more rapidly than inflation, especially in regional areas. We do know that um, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, rent report for the March quarter showed that compared to the same quarter, um, median rent prices rose by 2.3% across the state and it's gone up to $410. We have had the pleasure of working and speaking with the uh, Council to Homeless Persons and on the line at the moment during this NAIDOC week we are joined by Jenny Smith from the Council to Homeless Peoples, Persons. Sorry Jenny, good morning, how are you? Good morning Dean. Thank you for joining us on uh, 3CR. Lovely to be with you and your listeners. Yeah, look, I just wanted to um, touch base. I mean, uh, just quickly, can you tell us a little bit about what Councils to Homeless Persons does and who you are? Yes, look, we're the peak body for um, uh, ending homelessness in Victoria and we, uh, our members are predominantly the support service providers uh, within our community and uh, we try and... Uh, provide the policies that should be adopted in our community to uh, end homelessness or at least make sure that it's a, a once-off, brief and well-supported experience. And I think I just mentioned that, um, you know, most people are maybe not that aware of the housing crisis we have at the moment. Um, we know that it, it's um, affecting all of the population, but can you give us a, an estimate of what percentage of the population affected by homelessness are Indigenous, especially in, you know, in Victoria? Yes, look, I think it is an interesting question um, what the general awareness of our housing crisis is in the community. And I think our awareness is increasing. Um, I think our conversation is changing and uh, more and more people um, are either experiencing themselves or seeing people that they know or love um, really struggling to uh, find somewhere safe to live in our community. Um, but that isn't yet translating into the sort of action that we need to see uh, in order to see um, everybody have, have a safe place to live. And, and it couldn't be truer uh, for a group than for our Aboriginal populations um, in the country and, and certainly in Victoria. And um, our Aboriginal people are grossly overrepresented in um, people experiencing homelessness and um, 
people who are seen by our services. And, and having read that report, it sort of mentioned that they're 10 times more likely to experience homelessness, especially in Victoria, you know, with only 7% of um, Indigenous Victorians in social housing, which seem to be overcrowded as well. Yes, yeah, so um, they're certainly um, showing up in the um, census figures as much more likely, that, that 10 times more likely to uh, experience homelessness, but they're certainly also being seen by our homelessness services at a much, much higher rate uh, than the general population. And that's because, um, you know, you started off talking about the um, rental unaffordability. That's because homelessness is... Uh, about poverty by and large. It's, it's about people on our lowest incomes being completely uh, squeezed out of the housing market and people with additional challenges in their life, whether it's um, prejudice because of uh, Aboriginality uh, presenting to the private rental market uh, or people with other challenges in their lives like um, mental illness or uh, addiction, uh, they're not going to be able to compete successfully for the very few private rental properties uh, that they're able to afford. Mm, and I know we've spoken in recent times you know, about some of the developments that are happening in places like Heidelberg and what that sort of um, space and I guess those available homes could do to contribute to the homelessness crisis as well. Well, I think we need to see um, Commonwealth and, and state governments work together to do a couple of things. Um, one is to create new social housing, so that's um, housing that uh, wouldn't be more than 30% uh, of, of, uh, of a lowest income for mm. somebody, and that's really where we're at with uh, people on very low incomes and experiencing challenges in their life. But also um, because all of our governments, um, state and federal across the country, have taken the foot off the accelerator in relation to, to social housing over decades now, um, the stock that we have uh, is really old and um, past its use-by date and needs refurbishment. And so we are seeing um, uh, the state government do public-private partnerships to uh, refurbish uh, the existing uh, public housing properties um, that we have. Mm. But we do, despite the fact that um, our re-elected re federal government doesn't have uh, policies to uh, increase the amount of social housing at this stage, we do want the state government to um, pick up some of that um, responsibility and um, move from the current commitment of um, a thousand additional social housing properties over three years, so about 333 a year over three years, to 3,000 a year. And that would take Victoria up towards, over a 10 year period, would take us up uh, towards the uh, country's average of having about 5% of social housing. Um, you know, Victoria is at the bottom of that league table and we, we need to at least get up to the average, but still 5% is much, much lower than we need as a country. Mm. And, and I think I mentioned at the beginning that in 2018, the, the Closing the Gap report had named housing as one of the areas of highest importance. And I guess, um, you know, for setting additional future targets as part of the Closing the Gap refresh. Um, and this was adopted in the Closing the Gap report of 2019, have um, CHP seen any significant improvements in the, I guess, the shortage of social housing affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? You mentioned Victoria is quite low. Has there been any improvements from that closing the gap report of 2019? 
Well, unfortunately, at a federal level, um, the government cancelled the um, long-standing national partnership agreement mm. on remote Aboriginal housing, and I believe that's worth at least $345 million um, taken out of Aboriginal housing federally. I think the Northern Territory negotiated uh, to continue its share or some part of its share, but for the rest of the country, that um, source of funding for Aboriginal housing is no longer there. Um, which is you know, and I guess a, it, yeah. a tragedy, really. So it makes it hard for you know organisations such as Aboriginal Housing Victoria, which is you know has been developing an Aboriginal housing and homelessness framework, which was ultimately about trying to improve housing outcomes for Indigenous um, Australians and Victorians across their lives. Uh, how, how is important do you think it would have been and, and should still be to create more? I keep saying urban indigenous communities um, and services to tackle homelessness. It, it also obviously is a, a regional um, issue as well. Well, uh, firstly to say we're very excited um, that Aboriginal Housing Victoria is developing um, a framework um, for Aboriginal housing and homelessness and um, uh, we're very keen to uh, work as closely as possible and be as supportive as possible of that development and I think that will um, you know, paint the picture of what things should like, look like into the future. Um, from the high numbers of Aboriginal people that are seen by our services, it would seem that we, our um, general homeless services in our Victorian community are uh, to, at least to some extent ex accessible to um, Aboriginal people. But there's no doubt that we can get better at that and um, many of our services are working on reconciliation action plans to guide um, our services in being um, more um, Aboriginal accessible and sensitive. Uh, but there's no doubt that we as a community would benefit from more Aboriginal specific services mm. uh, in our area. And I think that leads to a, a lot more. I was reading a, an, a, an article by a student who used to be at RMIT who was studying this, and he sort of talked about the issues um, affecting Indigenous people, especially when you know they're in the metro area. So what are the services that are available? Do people go there? And I guess as an Indigenous person, the mainstream services are often far removed from their communities and families. So, you know, having Aboriginal Housing Victoria working on a, on a strategy is, you know, hopefully having some impact as well. Well, I think it's, I think it's a great step. And um, as I said, I think we can uh, do better. Um, but, you know, we're very committed to supporting self-determination. And, you know, part of that will be lifting our own game even further, but it will also be supporting um, Aboriginal-specific um, services in our area. And uh, I was reading too that the recent March quarter um, rental report sort of confirmed Victoria's housing crisis will continue and keep getting worse with rents rising more rapidly than inflation, especially in regional areas. H how can people, I guess, help you continue to fight homelessness, especially, you know, um, during this NAIDOC week and helping and assisting getting the message out there for, for Indigenous homeless people as well? Yes, and I think we'll see... Um you know, housing remain unaffordable to um, so many people until, you know, we see that uh, leadership at the federal level around 
um, getting our taxation system right in relation to property, um, a direct investment uh, in uh, social housing. Um, we see our state um, also invest but also in, introduce inclusionary zoning so every time we do a housing development or redevelopment um, there is a, a proportion of social and, and affordable housing so that we're actually providing for people on low incomes as we grow, as our population grows and working with um, local government. Um, but if it would be very helpful if people would let uh, our federal politicians and our state politicians know of their interest in seeing something done about this area. And our federal campaign is the Everybody's Home campaign. So that's Everybody's Home, one word. Um, and if people um, would like to show their support and they could go to that site and sign up, um, then they'll be able to stay in touch with our efforts to uh, increase the federal government involved, involvement in uh, leadership in this area. And I know, obviously, I mentioned that uh, next, uh, well, we're in NADOC week, but officially it's the 7th to the 14th of July. In August, um, when we've spoken previously, I'm aware that uh, Homelessness Week is up around that time of the year? Yes, Homeless Week uh, is, is that, I think it starts on the 5th of July, it's the Monday uh, this time, and we'll be doing... August. Yes, yeah, sorry, of August, yeah, and yeah. Uh, we'll be doing our launch um, down in Hobart and um, have... Uh, we, I believe we'll have uh, the new Federal Assistant Minister um, for Homelessness and Community Housing, Luke Howarth from Queensland, coming down to uh, open that event and we're looking forward to him engaging him more closely um, with our concerns. Well, thank you, Jenny, um, and good luck with all the work that you do there at the Council to Homeless Persons. We really appreciate you joining us on... 3CR and looking forward to um, yes, hearing more about some of the work that you're doing in the future as well. And that was Jenny Smith, the CEO of Council to Homeless Persons. And just quickly, I know that the uh, CEO of Regional Housing Victoria, Jennifer Sams, had said that a stable, safe and secure housing is the foundation for successful investments in education training, employment, um, justice, and also tackling family violence. And as Jenny Smith mentioned there, um, poverty is one of the key drivers in homelessness as well. Uh, we'll go to the next track, and it's by The Great Briggs, and the song is here. When they ask me where I'm from, when they ask me where I'm going, when they ask me where I belong, when they ask what I'm dreaming of, I can promise you'll never forget who we are, the ones who break through our And that was Briggs with Here. And, um, yeah, Yorta Yorta Man from Shepparton, Victoria, rapper, actor, and local legend, and speaking truth to power. And you may have seen um, just recently his take on Advance Australia Fair, which got him on to Q&A. So if you haven't uh, seen it, just Google Briggs and Advance Australia Fair for 
too. History lesson. Mm. It's interesting that that national anthem has only been around for 35 years. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Almost as long as I've been here. Must have been 1984 or whatever it was. Well, actually, yeah, that would would coincide with my arrival in Australia as well. Mm. And and probably also good to mention that Briggs has founded the record label Bad Apples Music and has some signed some great artists um, to that label, including Birds. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, check, check it out if you haven't. It's just fantastic. Now, uh, Dean, earlier you, you, talked about, you talked about Hong Kong and what's been going on there. Well, the other thing that we've been talking about quite a bit, and not just here but also in the media, is Australia's defence capabilities, our dependence on the U.S. alliance and... Um, and then how that fits with our relationship with China, which is, you know, our great trading partner, and in how we're positioned within that. So just in the past week, we've heard a, a lot of conversation about Hugh White's report saying that we can't depend on the uh, U.S. alliance. Uh, I think following from that, he suggests we need to arm ourselves <laughs> quite heavily. Mm. And, and, of course, there's been lots of debate on all sides of that. But it's certainly got people talking that book. And um, now there's also, um, in the meantime, there's a lot of fuss about <laughs> an uninvited guest to, um, uh, to the war games, the Talisman Sabre war games that are going to happen on the coast of Queensland. And it's the U.S. and Australia who will be engaging in those, but Japan has also joined in. Hmm. But the uninvited guest is a Chinese AGI vessel, an auxiliary general intelligence vessel that is expected to monitor the games from international waters, which they are fully entitled to be in. Mm. So, But it's interesting, you know, huge fuss has been made about that. But in last week we talked about Pine Gap and um, its surveillance and what it's doing. So it's interesting, you know, one thing is acceptable, another is not. But, you know, that's, that's just, I guess, to create a context. Now, two weeks ago I spoke with Professor Richard Tanter, from the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability about Australia's alliance with the U.S. And last week we broadcast uh, our conversation about Pine Gap and, you know, what, what Pine Gap does. This week we look at the Australia-U.S. alliance more generally and uh, we began by referring to the late Malcolm Fraser's book, Dangerous Allies, published in 2014, and as a former Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser would have had a good grasp of what goes on in defence. Malcolm Fraser was very clear about this. He said, Australian politicians are not taking responsibility for their actions. He argued that it was desirable for an Australian government under some circumstances to cooperate with the United States and others not. I'm fairly sure he would have considered Donald Trump in the not category. He would have said that the language of full knowledge and concurrence the Australian government uses with respect to the joint facilities, not just Pine Gap but others, is far too abstract, far too general. He would have wanted a very clear statement that we could pull the plug and if the United States couldn't give us that assurance then we should not host facilities like that. And he was particularly concerned about it in the case of Pine Gap's contribution to the targeting of drone assassinations, which he quite rightly argued were illegal under international law. Sooner or later, he knew, somebody would be charged with war crimes in Australia about that. 
He said politicians should and can get much more closely involved with these decisions and once they do, they need to take responsibility to the Australian people. And how is it looking at the moment to you with the current government? There's a lot of talk in Canberra of Trump being different, but of course in many respects Trump is not the problem. Nuclear normal is the problem. Trump's erratic behaviour, his institution busting, is destabilising, and that's actually not a good idea when nuclear weapons are around. But in general, we have hawks like uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo driving the bus in the United States at the moment. Paradoxically, Trump's decision not to proceed with a strike brings him out on the good side of things, at least momentarily. I think what's fundamentally important is for Australia to think out What are our interests? What do we really have an interest in? What is so threatening that it constitutes some part of an existential threat to Australia? Well, clearly Iran is not part of that. We may have a problem if, uh, as a result of this war, if it happens, we may have an oil shortage, as Jim Molden points out. That's really not an existential issue. It's just pump more um, and raise the price. Really, our interests in the Middle East are firstly to withdraw our troops from Iraq, complete our withdrawal of RAF aircraft participation in the Syria war, and also to have a balanced policy about nuclear issues in the Middle East, which means we should be very concerned if Iran does proceed further towards getting a nuclear weapon, we should be much more concerned about the fact that Israel probably has 80 to 100 nuclear weapons, uh, which is not declared. The Australian government has not recognised them. And this is just the kind of bad faith that absolutely corrodes international trust. And what about Saudi Arabia getting nuclear weapons? The idea that the United States could allow Saudi Arabia to get the nuclear power plant, which would then allow them to build a nuclear weapon, this is insanity at a very high level. This is a government, which is not a government, it's a kingdom. We used to call them despotisms in the day of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I thought we'd done with all that sort of thing. Saudi Arabia is a government which is extremely repressive towards its own people, conducting a horrific war with the UAE in Yemen at the moment, probably the world's greatest humanitarian crisis ongoing at the moment. And we have this totally biased approach to Iran and Israel's nuclear weapons. That really is destructive in its own right. And Australia needs to think out who are we and what do we actually need. Professor Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute talking about Australia's defence policy and the alliance with the US and the possibility of us being dragged into wars in the future. The obvious next question was what does Australia need when it comes to defence policy? I think at a defence level we need a capacity to defend Australia. I think we have uh, real interests uh, in some inhibiting and defeating some terrorist activities very close to Australia. I think you do need intelligence agencies to think about those kinds of issues and gather appropriate information for it. However, what worries me is a presumption that Australian interests and American interests are always going to align automatically. China is now being built in the mainstream media as America's principal threat. Trump has a particular version of that, but it's much broader than Trump. China is a country which I would say is a danger to its own citizens in the sense of the massive repression there. It's certainly a danger to uh, territories which it claims as part of its own, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet. But Australia as a settler colonial country really can't talk quite so glibly about that. 
China is a country which has a long imperial tradition, longer than that of the United States. They're both imperial powers. American empire is an empire of bases and cultural influence. China doesn't have much of either at the moment. If I lived in Vietnam or uh, the Philippines, I would be a bit more wary about China than that. They clearly want a sphere of influence there. That doesn't add up to domination and hegemony. It's roughly the way the world works with a hierarchy of powers. And small countries have to decide how much they want to accommodate and how much they want to resist. We are a long way from that. I think Australians don't quite know who they are. We haven't really worked out what are the consequences for today of Australian foreign policy, not starting, say, in 1938 or 39 when we got our first embassies getting loose with the British. It really started in 1788 when Philip landed in Sydney and the frontier wars began and have never really stopped in that sense. I think that a foreign policy is in many respects a continuation of that. We are only comfortable with the Anglophone countries, not only whitefellow countries, but the ones that speak English. We have no idea to how to think about China. China is coming back to the position it's had in civilizational terms for more than two millennia of being the largest and greatest power in the world. Australia's founding as a colony, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, just happens to be the time when because of simultaneous pressure from the British and other powers, China became weakened for its first time uh, in its history. Large parts of China were colonised. There was the most important part of the World War II in our part of the world was not the war between America and uh, Australia and Japan. It was the war between Japan and China, where some 20 million people died on the Chinese side of that. We don't have any notion of that. We have a huge cultural influence from the United States. It's very deep, very strong. We're only beginning to get any kind of acquaintance with China and already we're making it into our biggest threat. We need to become more acquainted, we need to think carefully and realistically. But first of all, we have to look and learn and we have to think about who we are. And that was um, Professor Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability urging us to think carefully about um, our relationship with Asia and also our relationship uh, with the US and how we might temper that. Um, yeah, mm. great, great to hear. It's always stimulating speaking to Professor Tanta. And it's it, it's it's inter- it is quite unique what happens in the military space and what happens in the social space because obviously you mentioned Japan has joined this training exercise, which I think is what makes it very interesting for China because mm. they're in that standoff around the Senkaku Islands in mm. the north of Japan. So I can't remember the Chinese name for, yeah. the, for those same islands, but. Uh, Yes, so, um, yeah. And socially, Japan's gone back to their whaling practices as well. Not only that, but also to um, building up military again, Mm. which, you know, they weren't permitted to do in the treaty, you know, post-World War II. But, uh, I mean, to read about and learn more about how the Japanese treated the Chinese, 20 million, I think Richard just said, um, it died. Um, China, you know, uh, deep scars around that. Yeah. But we're going to move on now, and uh, we're going to hear from Modo Juju and and Native Tongue. I don't. 
As I said, I've got the record, and uh, we were listening to that, weren't we, on the record? Yes, it's um, it's just wonderful. So I guess we've all been noticing that the Australian federal, federal, not federable, (laughs) the Australian federal police raids on the headquarters of the ABC and the home of a News Corp journalist in early June has highlighted serious concerns about about press freedom in this country, and um, you know, and, and the role of police. Um, heads of the ABC, News Corps 9, were unanimous and clear in telling the National Press Club on June 26 what needs to happen. But the government has opted for a press freedom inquiry that's going to be conducted by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, PJCIS for short. With, I'm sure with their own terms of reference too. Oh, well, the terms of reference <laughs> are interesting. And so Dr. Dennis Muller from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne has called it uh, letting the fox guard the hen house. <laughs> and he joins us now to explain why. So welcome back to Monday Breakfast, Dennis. Thanks, Judith. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, for getting up this morning. And, um, although, you know, you never know when you say that to people. Some people get up at 5 o'clock and, mm. you know, start perusing the news. And, and this morning it might have even been worthwhile because <laughs> what I discovered was um, apparently Qantas uh, has been asked to hand over its records. Uh, for, did you see that this morning? I did. Yes. I did, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it just shows that, um, well, for a start, the uh, Federal Attorney General, Christian Porter, has been misleading us because he has said that um, at this stage there's no intention to um, to charge journalists. He said they weren't the focus of those two raids you mentioned. Well, um, perhaps the Federal Police didn't tell him, but uh, it certainly seems that the Federal Police are intent on pursuing a criminal investigation against at least the ABC journalists. These are the guys who published a story um, that uh, revealed there were allegations that Australian soldiers in, in Afghanistan had killed unarmed civilians. So it's a, a major public interest story. And and it was one of those, Dan Oakes, whose travel arrangements uh, were obtained by the police from Qantas. And Qantas say, well, we get requests like this from the police all the time, and we always comply because we're obliged to by law. But, of course, they weren't advised that Daniel Oakes was a journalist. They just asked for his travel information. So, uh, and when, they, when the police sent the request, they sent it with a headline that said, Ah, that's to say Regina, or the Queen, uh, Regina versus Daniel Michael Oakes. Oh, no. Oh, which, which makes it, which, which is the title of a criminal uh, prosecution. Oh, I mean, the more you find out, the worse it gets. There's no, no question about. It. I feel, I'm, I feel just sick to my stomach when I, the more I hear. And um, but, uh, but let's just come back to um, about the committee, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, the PJCIS, that's going to investigate or that's set up the inquiry, going to uh, oversee the inquiry or do the inquiry, conduct it. So why do you say, Dennis, that it's letting the fox guard the hen house? 
Well, because the, this committee, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, is part of the problem. It can't be part of the solution because it's, it's the committee that has just waved through the, this wave after wave of, um, of national security legislation. So we've seen since September 11, uh, I think at last count, something like about 76 pieces of legislation, and about 60 of those have been passed since September 11. And now the Parliament has got another bundle of six waiting to uh, be, be pushed through. Now, this committee is meant to be the, uh, the supervising committee of the Parliament over the security service as well. Uh, it's, it's a classic example of what we call regulatory capture, where the, where the supposed regulator gets so close to the, to the entity being regulated that it has no regulatory effect at all. And, and that's where the committee has found itself, unfortunately. And I believe that some of the concerns that are being raised currently have already been raised with this committee before. Yes, that's right, uh, to, to no avail at all. And uh, Dean was mentioning a minute ago the, uh, the question of the terms of reference. Well, the terms of reference are basically um, extremely narrow. There's only one uh, of the terms of reference that basically um, has any, uh, I think, any traction, and that is the one that has to do with, uh, with warrants, search warrants. Uh, at the moment, uh, there is a, a warrant system so that if the police want to go after a journalist, uh, they have to get a warrant. And similarly, if they want to raid a, a media organisation, uh, but the warrant system is um, basically um, useless because they don't need to go to a judge the one that they got for the ABC raid came from a local court registrar in Queenbean, for heaven's sake. Yes. So they're going to look at that. The other term of reference that may have some benefit is looking at whether any legal procedures and thresholds can be changed so that the balance between press freedom and national security is, is changed. But uh, that's a long way short of, um, of what's needed because as the, the press bosses told the, the uh, the National Press Club, you know, we need de decent whistleblowing laws, we need a narrowing of the official secrets laws, and we need to narrow down the definition of national security so it actually is about national security and not about nearly anything else the government wants it to be about. Yes, and these were the things that were requested at that meeting on yeah, June the were. 26th. How urgent are those changes needed? Oh, they're dreadfully urgent. It's all, I mean, it's still unraveled and got hopelessly out of hand. And, and what, what the government, I think, wants to do is to basically buy time. It, wants to, it, it thinks cynically that uh, if, it, uh, uh, if it puts this off as long as it can, and the committee isn't due to report till October, uh, then uh, it, it, everyone will have moved on to something else and that uh, it'll be able to get away with a few... Um, sort of window dressing changes, which will give the impression that there's uh, greater press freedom, and it's very likely that there'll be no substance behind that. And, and Dennis, I think um, Judith touched on it. You were calling for the four laws that needed urgent reform to protect both national security and press freedom, and you mentioned that the government's trying to buy some time. Is it because they want to keep that line blurred between national security and press freedom? And is there a really a big difference between the two when it comes to this? 
Well, I, I think they do want to buy time, and, and they don't want to narrow down uh, the definition of national security, which, among other things, talks about um, uh, chasing missing persons and uh, and protecting the government revenue. I mean, that's about as far from national security as you can get. Mm. So they want to maintain these extraordinarily broad laws. Um, they will. They've also got a problem on their hands, the government, because if they really do try to uh, make these um, to improve press freedom, then <clears throat> they're going to uh, face an awful lot of blowback from the security services, from the police, and from the bureaucracy. And, the, and if the government gets into a fight with those people, it's on a hiding to nothing. So I think the, for, for the government, the stakes in this are pretty high, and they really want to get away with doing as little as they can. Yeah, so so it's a, a cynical delaying tactic, and it sounds from what you're saying that it's unlikely to resolve anything. That's that's my um, that's my view. I'm afraid that uh, experience teaches me that um, that governments in Australia just love secrecy. They will do all that they can uh, to avoid disclosure. When I was uh, FOI editor of the Age. Uh, I got hardly any stories at all um, on the basis of the, the, the documents that I was seeking. The only stories I really got were stories about the contortions that the bureaucracy went through to avoid giving me stuff. I mean, they were fairly, <laughs> they were fairly hilarious, the story. But, but there's a serious problem. I mean, it's been a problem for decades in Australia, and it's just getting worse. And, I mean, I'm wondering why are Australian people putting up with this? It's a good question, Judith. Um, I think that, you know, you, you can't expect people who've got busy lives to be spending too much time thinking about this. Mm. Um, but I think also there's something a bit deeper, and this is pure speculation. Um, Australians have always been a bit inclined to, um, to respect authority, to give too much respect to authority, uh, and they don't trust the media. And so they think, well, if the government says that they need these laws and it's only the media squawking about it, well, I'd rather trust the authorities than trust the media. <laughs> well, I, I suspect that that's a sort of basic default position for a lot of people. Well, well, Dennis, here at 3CR, we'd like to do quite a lot more squawking about it. <laughs> and I think that's where you, you say yourself, Dennis, that it would be a triumph of hope over experience, which is a government side, to expect the yes. PJRC to come up with anything. Yeah, but I am, I am interested in, in if, uh, you know, what you think we can do, um, you know, what we can be doing to bring this to attention. I appreciate the argument of people's busy lives. And yeah. also, we know so well, you know, if you're in the media, there's constant uh, new stories to pay attention to, new things to pay attention to. It, it's nonstop with the 24-hour news cycle. But if people listening want to do something, want to take action, is is there anything they can do? Well, they can approach their local member of parliament. They can put pressure on, on that way. They can, um, you know, they can get out on the streets if they want to, and uh, not that I think that's very likely. But, I mean, we, we do have processes. We can, we can write to members of parliament. We can write to ministers. Um, we can participate in public meetings when they're held on these things. But it's the, the big responsibility, I think, 
rests with us, the media. We are notoriously short-winded. As you were just saying, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, things move on, we move on. But we've got to stay on this story. We, that's our responsibility primarily. Yes. And, and if we do that, that generates its own source of pressure on the, on the politicians. But you know, the responsibility is primarily ours. If we want this changed, and it really needs to be changed, then we have to make the argument to the public. And in fact, Hugh Marks, the head of Channel 9, was saying that at the National Press Club. It's our job to make the argument to the public and thereby to get the public behind this momentum for change. Dennis, thank you so much for coming on this morning, and it's been great to, to get your, you know, your information. Also, the article was terrific, and some of the things that we need to be paying attention to, whether in community radio or in the media more broadly, and also to people who listen and uh, enjoy the work we do. So, um, yes, thank you so much for thanks, coming Dennis. on. Thanks for keeping it going, Judith. It's great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> thanks. And that was Dennis Muller. Yes, so big thanks to Dennis. And um, now we're going to move on to an interview. Yeah. We've got someone else on the line. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to be talking to Liam O'Brien from ACTU, which is the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And we're going to particularly today, there's so much to to talk about with the unions at the moment, but we're going to be speaking about the KCTU and the chairman... Kim Mai Young Hung, or Mr. Kim, how he's also referred to as well, who was arrested on June the 21st by the South Korean authorities following the um, workers' pay protests in South Korea. So the focus will be on him today. And the ACTU say they will not stay silent while those who fight for working people's rights in our neighbouring countries are targeted, harassed and intimidated. Um, a few key points just to understand before we jump into this interview. The KCTU is the Korean Federation of Trade Unions in South Korea. Kim Moi Young Hung, or Mr. Kim, um, is the chairman of the KCTU, and himself and other KCTU officials have been arrested over these protests about workers' pay. The KCTU unionists and civilians supported the now president, Moon Jae-in, and his Labour government and took to the streets in 2017 to unseat the corrupt conservative Park Geun-hye from presidency. So once an ally of the Moon Jae-in government and now a target. So Liam, welcome to the show. And can you tell us exactly what the Moon Jae-in government are trying to do regarding workers' hours and wages? Firstly, thanks for having me and thanks for taking interest in, in this issue. I think what's really troubling about this is, as you stated before, um, these were union leaders that were very supportive of a change of government. They were doing so because you know, the previous corrupt government had done nothing for workers' rights in South Korea. And obviously, you know, a, a big push on was to improve workers' rights in South Korea, including a significant lift to the minimum wage but also a really significant reduction in working hours. Mm-hmm. South Koreans work some of the longest hours in the OECD, you know, nearly close to double uh, countries like, for example, Germany. And uh, Mr Kim's actions were all, were, were all focused at trying to bring about um, some reform in this area so that working people can have some time to themselves. Yeah, because... 
I found that quite um, interesting. And like you said, the like Mr. Kim and the KCTU had really um, helped the President Moon Jae-in and Moon Jae-in's government come to um, to power. And Moon Jae-in took the position um, toward a Labour respecting society, actually, was his slogan. So what's been the change of heart towards the KCTU and Labour in, the South, in South Korea? Well, as I said, I think, I think it largely stems around the issue around working hours. But I suppose the broader context here is, is not so much what maybe prompted a disagreement between a government and a union leader or, or, or unions generally, but in particular the response of any government to such sort of opposition to go out and arrest a union leader on charges of um, you know, inciting civil unrest is something that we should be very, very concerned about occurring in our region. And it's not something that's just happening in South Korea. It's happening throughout our region. We've seen union leaders locked up in Fiji. Mm. And I think we can look to our own country. And whilst we're not seeing union leaders arrested, we're definitely seeing this encroaching of authoritarianism. Uh, I heard you speak earlier talking about press freedom. Yeah. Um, this is something that you know, I think all Australians should be very concerned about. Mm. And just, um, and I agree, and the note on um, with what's happening in Fiji, if we have time, um, we should definitely touch on that. But just to, to bring it back to the Moon Jae-in government, do you, do you know why the, the protest was seen as illegal and why Mr Kim was actually being investigated in the first place? So I, I, I don't know why it was seen as illegal. Mm. I, I, you know, in terms of the issues that um, Mr Kim and the KCTU had been campaigning around, and the KCTU is one of two peak bodies in, uh, in South Korea and it's been one of the fastest growing um, trade union movements in the world over the last few years and it's been doing so because it has been mobilising workers in new sectors of the economy and doing so around a whole lot of the issues that a lot of Australians are talking about as well, such as precarious work, you know, increased minimum wages and reducing hours of work. And uh, it's been very active in that space. And, um, you know, as I said, it was, it was a significant contributor to um, the downfall of the previous government, uh, in what was called the candlelight revolution. And, um, you know, I think what we're seeing here is unions doing what unions are expected to do, which is to stand up and represent working people, um, and now being targeted because of a falling out with um, a particular political leader is very troubling. Mm. And um, what, would you, what would your response be to some people that might say, um, what does the KCTU have to do with Australia and why should Australia care about what's happening in, in our neighbouring countries? Well, we should care about what's going on, not just in our neighbouring countries, but throughout the world. You know, we've got, we just had two weeks ago, um, the International Labour uh, Organisation annual conference where you know, delegates from government, business and unions from all over the world come together to essentially set the standards for how labour is treated around the world. And in our region, we have some of the worst offenders of both the right to organise, so the right to um, do exactly what Mr Kim is talking about, but also freedom of association. And these are really you know, fundamental rights that working people have got the world over. And we should be concerned when our neighbours potentially breach those and do so in some pretty uh, significant ways. We talked about uh, Fiji before and the arrest of union leaders there for essentially, again, inciting public unrest because of 
working people's issues. These are things that we should be concerned about. And as I said before, you know, in Australia we are seeing this sort of encroaching trend towards demonising unions. Uh, we've had you know, unions raided on national TV in this country in the last couple of years. These are things that Australians should be worried about. Mm. And Liam, could you know the the fact that the, the these countries are newly industrialised, especially in East Asia, could that sort of be, um, I guess, uh, be a challenge to to the trade union solidarity from from I guess from transnational corporations who have moved their manufacturing bases from Europe and North America to to these countries in 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 Asia. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think what we see in our region in terms of industrialisation is that companies, uh, very large multinational corporations, are going to these countries and they exercise a lot of leverage on national governments about the way in which labour laws are struck. Um, so you know, we don't have to go far in our region to see corporations that exercise significant power and interest with local governments and often that brings them into conflict with trade union leaders. Mm. And, um, yeah, I guess the real war here is on freedom of speech, and that's what um, that and the ACTU you guys are really passionate about as well. And can you just talk to us a little bit more about your concerns of the freedom of speech in Australia and the disruption of it? Yeah, so I think that in terms of we've seen the, the obvious um, debate issue over press freedom following the raids of a News Corp journalist um, and the ABC studios in terms of, you know, them bringing to the public stories of public interest and the government using what are really draconian national security laws to clamp down on press freedom. But I think it goes to a broader issue around democracy and the roles that not just you know the media play, but also the trade unions play in our society. Mm. You know, you know, there, are, there are very few organisations out there um, that play a significant role in democracy and, and how issues are ventilated in, in the public space. The, the role that unions play. And we've got um, legislation currently before the, the federal parliament to significantly decrease the ability of working people to run their unions. And you know, that's obviously a real concern in terms of what's going on in Australia. We have some of the most regulated trade unions in the world and the current bill with proposals to further restrict the rights of trade unions uh, and their democratic structures uh, is a real worry. Mm. And just to finish, um, just to finish up, is there anything that um, that the Australian public can do, or if anybody is also concerned about what's happening across seas and here, where they can go to support? Look, we call on uh, on Australians to speak to their members of parliament, both about the concerning actions of foreign governments and the actions that they take against union leaders, both in South Korea and Fiji, but more broadly throughout our region. And in relation to, you know, as I said just recent, just before, you know, the issue around ensuring integrity, which is a, the bill proposed to further regulate unions. Again, we need to speak to members of parliament to make sure that they are aware that it's really important in this country that unions remain democratic organisations, that they are free to elect their leaders and that they don't have the interference of government. This bill would propose not just to restrict that, but also give the government you know, unprecedented power to deregister trade unions, essentially to, to you know, abolish certain trade unions. Um, and that's not acceptable. That's, that's something that we should be very, very worried about. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for coming on, Liam, and sharing your thoughts with us regarding this really important issue. And I'd like to invite you now back on the show again um, to speak more in detail about what's happening with Mr Kim's case as it goes on and also with what's happening in Fiji as we didn't get to touch on that as much as we'd like to today. Um, So, yeah, thank you, Liam, for joining us. No, thank you, and more than happy to come back. That's great. Thanks, Thanks, Liam. Cheers. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. And that was Liam O'Brien from the ACTU. What's up, listeners? This is Johnny Mac here. Just reminding everybody to tune in to 3CR at 11am each day from Monday, July the 8th to Friday, July the 12th for our special Beyond the Bars broadcast during NADOC. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. So make sure to listen in and support our brothers and sisters until they're home again. So if you're looking to for something to do this Saturday coming, I haven't checked out the weather to see what's going to be like, but I'm going to suggest that you uh, think of going along over to the Footscray Community Arts Centre at 2 o'clock. You'll see uh, Popomoko. It's uh, Scoma? <laughs> no, not Scoma. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. But uh, there's a thought. <laughs> Popomoko is their next show. Maybe well, you'll see yeah. their resident drag blokes, Mark, Keith, and Gavin, bring to life three inclusive kids' books using puppetry, song, dance characters, and really. Totally fabulous celebration of gender and diverse families. So I spoke to Kimberly Twiner um, a couple of weeks and a half ago now to find out more. So we're just going to hear more from Kimberly. And today we ha- we did play some of this last week, but today we have time to play a little more of that interview. So um, yeah, and I asked by I started by asking about the resident drag blokes. So there's three of us, myself. <laughs> Lily and Hallie and we play these three drag blokes and we've named them after our fathers because when we first came up with them we just thought it was funny and they were the first kind of names that came to our heads so in a way there there is some spirit of our father energy in these characters but they're also a little bit 80s as well. They're a little bit on the 80s daggy, daggy cool side. Not daddy cool, but daggy cool. Daggy cool, not daddy cool, probably 270s. Though there is a good pair of flared pants that Keith wears, actually. I'm very excited. <laughs> what colour are they? It's um, navy pinstripe with a white pinstripe. It's a three-piece. Wow. Okay, well, I'm already coming to the show. Let's just say that. <laughs> So how did you blokes get together? The blokes are part of Popomoko. We were formed after a bunch of us studied at John Bolton Theatre School in Melbourne. So I was looking for a reason to keep getting together and practising what we learnt and devising work together. So I said like, oh, okay, let's get together once a week and make some new stuff and do a show every month. 
That sounds incredibly <laughs> ambitious to do a show every month. I know that now. We did this for about nine months or ten months. The blokes didn't really exist then. Oh, so, so the blokes have kind of evolved. Yes, they started as roving characters because they just they look great in their kind of matching suits and their terrible wigs and beautiful facial hair. And so they started as roving characters. They were silent and always doing these in-sync dance moves out in the public. They really attracted people to want to boogie with them in this very just silent, physical relationship with strangers. So we thought these are really charming, lovely, quite safe characters. People feel safe approaching their space. So then we kind of had the idea of going down a drag story time road with them, which is cool because most drag story times are drag queens not drag kings or drag blokes. When did that emerge, that story? We put together a drag story time for Woodford Folk Festival up in Queensland two years ago. We had a drag queen in the troupe at the time, so she ran that. The response was quite profound, especially because this was in Queensland, which has a different energy around queer and rainbow politics compared to Melbourne. So the response was very moving. People coming to watch it who are queer parents bringing new babies, like babies who couldn't understand anything, but this is the kind of thing that they want to be around. And then we had 16 and 17 year old people coming every day. And we we were just thinking, you're too old for this. But they were there for a reason. And to have that space happening was really quite moving for us because we thought, obviously, there's some people here that this is their story and they want to be here for their story. I feel moved just hearing you tell me about it. It was quite touching, and Woodford is a very beautiful place. There's this thing at Woodford where you can send a letter to anyone in the festival. So anyone you see at the festival, the posties will try to find for you. So even you might know their name, you might not know their name. They might be an artist. They might be someone working at one of the cafes. But you can write a letter, say, to the beautiful woman with big sparkly eyes, piggy tails, and wears the purple dungarees every day. You put this in the post office and the Woodford Posties will try to find this person. It might end up at the right person or the wrong person, but they deliver. And we received a lot of extremely touching letters from children, from children telling us, please never stop doing what you're doing. This is so important. Thank you for bringing your queer rainbows to Woodford and all of these incredibly moving things written from the hands of children. And we were just, you know, we'd done 40 shows that week. And by the time we got our post, we were just like, oh my God, oh my God, what we do is important. Oh my gosh. What an affirming experience to have. Yeah, it was incredibly affirming because it wasn't easy to do 40 shows in 40 degree heat in five days. It was incredibly moving that we got that feedback in that form from these wonderful little humans.
And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Kimberly Twiner. She's from Popomoko, talking about their experiences of performing Once Upon a Drag Storytime at the Woodford Folk Festival. But now Melbourne audiences can see it at the Footscray Community Arts Centre on Saturday the 13th. I asked Kimberly how long Popomoko has been together. Next year will be our fourth year. The ensemble has changed. People have come and people have gone, but we've got a bit of a core troupe now that we have some solid shows with. Drag Storytime is one of the ones that we really want to put out into the world, into, into Australia. So just tell me about this particular show that's going to be on at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Once Upon a Drag Storytime is a show with the three blokes. They read three different queer kids' books. So three totally gorgeous, inclusive kids' books that promote feminism, gender identity, being fluid and free, same-sex relationships and same-sex families. The three blokes read these stories and we've got a sketch that accompanies the books. So there's a puppetry sketch, there's a you know a big giant whale that comes through the crowd made from recycled materials, plastic, and there's a mini pantomime and a mini talent show. And then we have a drag queen that appears at the end and that's the world-famous Rosie Cheeks who is one of our very famous bum puppets. Tell me about bum puppets, although I do have a sense that bums are hilarious for children. Bums are hilarious for children and adults alike. When is a bum ever not funny? But we have this quite beautiful drag character assembled around the bum of one of our performers and I stand behind and kind of operate the arms of this character so it's this kind of short little drag queen totally dolled up and beautiful like larger than life gorgeous costume named Rosie Cheeks and her eyes are on the butt of someone and this is the grand finale Yes, this is a grand finale, shake your groove thing and dance moves all included in that. But most of the time, the the children sit there trying to work out how this thing is happening and you just see their faces. It's something they've never seen before. It's like they're looking at a fantasy creature like a leprechaun or something they've never seen before and their parents or carers are just kind of nudging them going, can you see what that is? Can you see what it is yet? Can you see the two people there? <laughs> and then they have this aha moment. It's totally funny. It sounds wonderful. I'm just going to come back and talk a little bit about your troupe. You combine a range of skills. Do you all do all of those things, like physical theatre and um, puppetry, or do different members of the troupe specialise? Some people have stronger skills than others, but underneath all is um, a really strong foundation of clown training. Treating the audience without a fourth wall, so everything is very present with the audience. A sense of naivety in the play, so everything is very fresh and being performed for the only time. It's all happening right here, right now. Played 100%. Just play it 100%. 
and playing it 100%. And if you want to see that, then get along to Footscray Community Arts Centre this Saturday afternoon, the 13th, I think it is, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm going to be there because I want to see those flares with the, the pinstripes, and I want to dance and boogie. And yeah, it's going to be it's great. It's going to be great. So now we're coming up to towards the end of our, our show and we're wanting to play one more song to um, to kind of acknowledge that it was NAIDOC week in Victoria last week, NAIDOC week nationally now, this week. And um, uh, just a warning, the person who we're going to play now has, has passed away. Um, in 2010, it's it's Ruby Hunter, the beautiful mm. and amazing Ruby Hunter. So um, maybe we could just uh, recap the show because the song will take us out. Okay, yeah, okay. at uh, 7:15 we heard the Council for Homeless Persons, Jenny Smith, talking to us about their work with Aboriginal Housing Victoria in trying to stem the tide in Indigenous homelessness. Yes, and then we heard from Richard Tanter encouraging us to rethink uh, our defence policies and our foreign policy as well, and uh, and then of course Dennis Muller who's looking at the inquiry into religious, uh, not religious freedom, sorry, into press freedom and, and the problems with that. Yes, I do like his title of his uh, Letting the Fox into the Hen House. Yes. Uh, yeah. I've been reading um, Fantastic Mr. Fox with the kids. So uh, Yes. Yeah. Well, I kind of think of, you know, Dracula guarding the blood bank as yeah. another analogy to what's going on. <laughs> and we spoke to Liam O'Brien from the ACTU, Australian Council of Trade Unions, about the goings-on in South Korea. Yes. And, of course, um, we, we've heard from the show that's going to be on a Popomoko at Footscray Community Arts Centre. And now here's... Um, and Popomoko is post-post-modern comedy. And indeed it will be. <laughs> indeed it will be. Thank you, uh, Dane, for that. And uh, now we're going to hear Naranjeri Woman by Ruby Hunter. It's with Archie Roach and the Australian Art Orchestra. Beautiful song. It is. Uh, Ruby. Ruby Hunter with Naranjari Woman, and that was with Archie Roach and the Australian Art Orchestra, and I think Paul Grabowski was part of that. Wow, well. Paul. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. he on uh, Steve Fireside, The Tonight Show? A long time ago, shows you how old I am. He's a great <laughs> composer, yes, Paul Grabowski. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. The next breakfast team will be here tomorrow and continue on for the rest of the week. We have women on the line coming up next, and as usual, they do a fantastic show. I'll say goodbye and look forward to seeing you next week. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.